Well, it's wonderful to be with you here, and uh, I'm just amazed at what God is doing in your midst, uh, if one is free to say that. So I recall, as some of you have reminded me, being involved a little bit with the council two years ago when they were considering Aubrey and Janelle, and I think then I was able to say, and I can certainly say now, they're a gift. And so it's wonderful just to see uh, what God is doing in your midst and how the church is growing, not only in numbers, but qualitatively. And so I'm delighted to be down here with you and to have this awesome privilege of bringing the Word of God to you. So this is one of the many moments in the service where you ought to metaphorically take off your shoes. Because you now enter into holy ground, not because Craig Bartholomew is speaking. (laughs) Oh, that that was true. (laughs) But because uh, when we come to the Word of God, it has this extraordinary capacity for the preacher to diminish, which is what I pray for this morning, and for Christ to increase, and for the possibility of you here in Harrisonburg on this Sunday morning to be addressed by the living God and to be called into his very life and his mission for his world. And so may God grant that amidst the stillness and the quietness that I will diminish and that you will hear God addressing you this morning. On Tuesday night, I think it is, you will host another Café Veritas called For the Sake of the City. Now, this is a marvelous theme because, well, one reason is that you live in a marvelous city. And so it's kind of quite neat down here to be for the sake of the city, I think. Maybe if you lived in inner city Chicago, uh, where all those shootings were going on, you'd have a bit of a different perspective. But this is a marvelous theme and one that fits well with Lent and Easter. And I'm sure that you're aware through what you receive from Church of the Incarnation that in Lent and uh, as we journey with Jesus... We journey towards the cross, towards Holy Saturday, towards Resurrection Sunday, and then on to the Ascension, and then Pentecost, which is the outpouring of the Spirit uh, upon the church for the sake of the world. And I do remind you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that this journey that you are on this particular Lent, is not just for the sake of your own formation, although it is that. It is not just for the sake of Church of the Incarnation, although it is that. But because it is the journey with Christ, it is a journey for the sake of His world, for the sake of this city. Dietrich Bonhoeffer Uh, who many of you will know about. He was an extraordinary Lutheran pastor, and he conspired to assassinate Hitler with a group and was imprisoned. And then just before the end of, of World War II, he was put to death 
most extraordinary uh, theologian and philosopher. And in one of his books that I think every one of you should read, but then I'm a professor, so I say that all the time, uh, but in his book Ethics, which is truly an extraordinary book, he says that because Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again, that you and I, as part of God's people, we live in what he calls the penultimate era. We're in that era between the coming of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. And Bonhoeffer stresses very strongly that because of that, we live in the light of the future. We know, amidst all the mysteries of history, that history is headed towards the renewal of the whole creation when Christ will return and heaven will descend, the new Jerusalem. We will not go up to heaven, but the new Jerusalem will descend to the earth and the whole creation will be renewed. And Bonhoeffer says that the church lives in the shadow, if you like, the glorious shadow of that future that is so assured. And so Bonhoeffer says, in the light of that, that if the church has a space in the world, it is inevitably and always a space for the world. And you see, uh, here uh, we are in Harrisonburg, and God has blessed you so extraordinarily over these last two years. And he's given you this absolutely marvelous space. I mean, look around you. Look at, uh, it's just wonderful what is going on. Now, of course, there are all sorts of good things that you use this space for. You have this beautiful space here in Harrisonburg. It's remarkable that in two years you've grown, you've got this building, this extraordinary architecture, uh, a podium that no longer moves, you know, <laughs> which is a very good thing. <laughs> and uh, so what is, you, what is this place for? I mean, why do you think God is, is doing these things in your midst? Well, this place is for many things. It is the place that you gather, as Aubrey, I think, quite remarkably and wonderfully called us to this morning, uh, to meet with God. So, you know, we, knew, we do need to recover this stuff. We haven't just gathered for entertainment. You know, there's a most extraordinary possibility when we gather that we will meet and God will be in our midst. And not just the local deity of Harrisonburg, but the Creator God, the one who reigns over the entirety of creation. It's rightly His. And here we come as this, this group of people in Harrisonburg and God says that if we come, you know, to meet here and to hear his word, that he will be in the midst of us. And so this must be a place where we come to encounter God. And, you know, many people who've lived in monasteries and other places bear eloquent testimony. Uh, Bishop Tom Wright was saying that he was in a, a building for a concert hall that had been a church and then it had been changed into a concert hall. And he couldn't get over the whole evening that he was there. He had such a sense of the presence of God. And, and there is something about place like that, that if God's people 
uh, live so deeply into God in a certain place. It's as though the very fabric of the place starts to take on something of that ethos. And so this must be a place where the word spreads that, you know, it may happen in many other places in Harrisonburg, but this is a place where people can come to encounter the living God. This must be a place where people can come to take off their shoes because existentially there is something about this that is holy ground. So we come to meet with God. We come to hear His Word. We come to eat and drink Christ in the Eucharist. So in the Word preached, God invites us to become a participant in His very life. And then in the Eucharist, He says to us as His forgiven, extraordinarily forgiven children, come to my table now. Now let's all sit together. And here I'm going to serve you, my son, who will nourish you on my very life. And so this is an extraordinary thing to have a place where you can do this. And yet I remind you of what a theologian friend of mine used to tell me. And I love this statement. He used to say to me, when we gather around Christ for worship, he stands with his face towards his world. And you see, that's tremendously important. So the Christ that you will encounter here is the Christ who died to redeem the whole of his creation. And so if you truly are encountering God, and if you truly are eating of his Son, then this is the God who gave his Son, yes, to bring us to himself, but also to make us a sign of the kingdom of God in the totality of his creation, because it is from him and through him and to him that all things are. They came into existence by him, they're for him, and he hasn't abandoned his creation. So when we gather around this Lord Christ and we worship Him and we tell Him that all the glory belongs to Him in these wonderful hymns that we sing, you must always remember He stands with His face towards His world. And so this place will be for many things. But if this place is filled with people who are really following Christ, and you know, I must stop and ask you that. You know, even in a vibrant church like this, it's very possible that you are sitting here this morning and yet you have never come to a personal faith in Christ. Now, have you? You know, have you reached that point in your life that I did when I was about 14 where I realized that it's not just about going to church, it's about a relationship and that there's a need to ask God for forgiveness and to enter into that relationship to trust Christ to save you from your sins. It will turn your life around. But you have to go through that experience. Now, you know, if you have, and you're part of a community of people who have, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you know, you cannot become a disciple of the one 
who stands with his face towards the world, without also standing next to him with your face towards the world. And so if we are the people of God and the people of Jesus Christ, then we will be a people who are for the sake of the world. Now, you know, Jonah, I think, and I want to talk just a little bit today, uh, this morning, and then tonight uh, more. I'll tell you what I'll talk about tonight. I think Jonah has a lot to teach us about what might be involved in being uh, a church that is for the sake of the city, and not just for the sake of Harrisonburg. I mean, you've got to uh, be for the sake of Harrisonburg, but there's more to life than Harrisonburg, (laughs) Uh, believe it or not. When I hear, and I I know why you love it so much, because I can just see what a gorgeous place it is to live and how blessed you are. But, you know, there's, there's other parts of the world, there's parts of America where there's terrible suffering. And my hunch is that as Christ stands here and he looks at Harrisonburg, he looks at Harrisonburg, but he also looks beyond. Now, you know, Jonah, I think, has got a lot to teach us about what it might mean to become a church for the sake of the city, because I think Jonah was a good American Christian. He was passionate about being part of God's covenant people. Oh, he liked that. You know, God's people are the covenant people. They're the elect of God. In his infinite grace and mercy, we are part of God's elect. We're not like the other nations, you see. And often in American uh, civil religion, that means, well, we're not like those northern Canadians, or we're not like those horrible Asians, or those awful Russians, or so on. We are the light on the hill that cannot be hidden. Now, sometimes that extends into civil religion. But it's far too common amongst God's people to think of themselves as their covenant people like Jonah, utterly orthodox in his doctrine. And Jonah was not only that, he was a prophet. This was not an unconverted man. This was a converted man. And Jonah knew that awesome experience which the Old Testament mysteriously describes in the words, and the word of Yahweh came to There's not an Old Testament scholar on the planet who knows exactly what that involved. It's the formula for prophetic revelation. And Jonah knew what it was to receive God's word, to wake up to the fact that God is not a deistic God who sets up the world like a clock and then goes away and leaves it to unfold. But Jonah knew that God is the transcendent God who is utterly holy and beyond imagination. And yet, mysteriously and wonderfully, the imminent God, profoundly involved in the day-to-day realities of the world in which we live. And so Jonah was a gifted preacher. He longed to see the people of God flourish. But like too many Christians, he had failed to see that when we gather around Christ, Christ stands with his face towards the world. Like too many American and North American Christians, Jonah saw the people of God, the church, as an end in itself. And Jonah was quite sophisticated theologically. You know, he knew the lingo. Okay, so he had a theological vocabulary. Alas, when it came to non-Israelites, this vocabulary was fairly limited. It amounted to one word, judgment. 
And so you see, he had a very strong sense of what the difference was between the people of God and those who were not Christians. And Jonah was passionate about his faith, passionate about being part of the people of God, the covenant people of God. But the only thing that he could foresee for those who were not part of the covenant people of God was the judgment they rightly deserved. Now, you know, uh, I don't completely despise Jonah for this. A judgment remains an important word in our vocabulary. And in North American Christianity, we're now in a situation where to even have this word in your vocabulary is politically incorrect. So part of me wants to say, good on you, Jonah. (laughs) You didn't just uh, submit to the politically correct pressures of the day. You retained a notion of a holy God who judges sin. But so Jonah was a no chance of abandoning that. But you know what he lacked was the holy compassion of God. Now notice I didn't say just the compassion of God, it's the holy compassion of God. Now, you know very well the story of Jonah. It's the most extraordinary narrative, especially if you read it in the Hebrew. Uh, It starts off saying, and the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. Nothing prepared Jonah or the audience for that. And then if you were listening to the story, which is how you need to imagine it, because it's narrative, so you need to think of yourself as an Israelite listening to it, you know, my goodness me, we've never heard anything like this before. We know this is a prophet, this is prophetic revelation. The word of the Lord comes with a command, a commission, arise and go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. You know, this is like uh, uh, the worst possible case scenario. Now, what will the prophet do? And he arose, the same word in Hebrew, to flee to Tarshish, which was in Spain, exactly the opposite direction. And so uh, eventually you get to chapter 4, where a lot has happened, where Jonah explains why he fled. Why do you think Jonah fled? Well, I mean, the one thing that's very interesting about this story is when God gets busy things happen. So the one thing that was not possible was Jonah would just hang out anonymously in Israel. (laughs) See, that that would be nice, you know. So the word of the Lord has come to you, but, you know, you may be able to plug your ears and stop hearing it, and you just carry on nicely in Harrisonburg. When the word of the Lord comes, it, it rarely allows that sort of passivity Something has to break. And for Jonah, it's inconceivable that he would actually go off to Nineveh and fulfill this commission, so he flees in the opposite direction. You know, in chapter 4, when he explains this to the Lord, he says in chapter 4, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, I don't know if that is why he fled. You know what we humans are like. That's the reason he gives. 
you know, when push comes to shove and his ministry's been effective and he likes that even less. You know, he wanted the Ninevites thoroughly destroyed. But it is a most extraordinary thing he does here in chapter 4 and verse 2. He quotes one of the great creeds of the Old Testament that you find in Exodus, Numbers, in the Psalter, and in Joel. This statement that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But you know what he does? Rather than embracing it, he liked that, that theology when it applied to the people of God. He really couldn't bear the thought that others could be treated similarly. And so in a most extraordinary, perverse way, he takes this creed and he tries to indict God with it. And so the first thing that we learn from Jonah is that he lacks a theology of holy compassion. What Jonah, I think, had failed to understand was why uh, uh, ch- this church has developed in Harrisonburg. He'd failed to understand what God was to, what's the purpose? Why would God allow a group like this to develop? Why did God choose Israel, we might ask? And the answer is, if you go to Exodus chapter 19, that election is always for service for the sake of the world. So uh, if you go to Exodus 19, you'll see that when God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, he brings them to himself, and he says, you are a royal priesthood. And you know, this is the most marvelous image, that God's people is supposed to live so that they're like a window. Israel was meant to be like a window that other nations could come along and peer in, and they could say, oh my goodness me, So that's what life, when it's lived properly and fully, looks like. So all along, God's intention was that Israel was not an end in itself. It was there for the sake of the world or the sake of the city. And Jonah, I think, had really, uh, you know, misunderstood this. And so if we are going to be for the sake of the world, we will need to have a strong doctrine of holy compassion. We'll have to become like God, holy but compassionate, patient. You know, uh, another theologian, Karl Barth, has an excellent discussion of the patience of God, and he says something like this. He says, in the heart of God there is an abyss that is so deep that it it can create the space for the world in all its wretchedness in order to give the world time to respond and to become what God is calling it to be. This does not mean that there will be no judgment. There will be judgment. But it does mean that God is extraordinarily patient with us, and we are called to holy compassion, and extraordinary patience with our world. Now, you know, just a few other points from Jonah that I think can help us uh, in terms of what it will mean to become for the sake of the world. I've already alluded a bit to this. It will mean that we are the people of God. Now, you know, I think in our Christianity, a thing we we have to recover is some kind of sense of the reality of God. 
You know, C.S. Lewis says that uh, for too many people, God is like playing burglars. Do you remember as a child when you played burglars? And C.S. Lewis says there comes that moment when you're playing burglars, which is such fun, where you hear a sound that you can't identify. It could be a real burglar. Game over. (laughs) See, the last thing you want when you're playing burglars is a real burglar. And you know, in North America, our churches are full of people who the last thing they want is God. The God who C.S. Lewis describes as the hunter, the warrior, the king, the God who approaches at infinite speed. You know, Wendell Berry says, who's one of my favorite authors and I understood widely loved around here, which is very good for my heart, but he says God is the wildest thing in the creation. And you know, if you want to be for the sake of the city, the one thing to start getting a grip on now is you cannot control God. And if you've espoused a version of religion that is an attempt to get God under control so that your life is under control, this is not Christianity. It's some kind of perverse ideology or cultish stuff that is pervasive in North American evangelicalism. And Jonah had to learn this. It's not the word of Jonah that comes to, to Yahweh. Jonah's quite happy hanging out in Harrisonburg. Life is cool. It's a pleasant place to live. He's a good preacher. He's got a good reputation. And then can you believe it? This has to happen. And the word of Yahweh comes to Jonah. And I wonder what that word looks like when it comes to Harrisonburg. But God, you know, alive, the living, the true God, approaching at infinite speed, utterly uncontrollable. I mean, that's God. And that's what Jonah had to wrestle with. And this is a God that you can try and mess around with, but it doesn't work. He's the God who controls the seas and the whole of creation. So you can kid yourself when you get to the harbor and you find holy cow. In the providence of God, there's a ship heading today for Tarshish, and you can get on. A cheap ticket. This must be the providence of God. (laughs) And so then you go in your depressed stupor, and you go and sleep. There's a cabin where you can sleep. I mean, you know, thank God some sanity has prevailed. And then God, you know, lets this all happen. Then he throws... uh, a, a humongous storm into the, into the ocean. This is God. The God, you know, it's not, not a God to mess around with. It's the living God. And so one thing we would need to really recover is a sense of this. And, you know, Jonah is forced to come out and make this confession, but it's a very powerful confession in chapter 1 and verse 9. Eventually the sailors, and I love this because, you know, God and the sailors, the pagans, force him to be for the sake of the city. And that will happen sometimes. The church is a pretty screwed up thing sometimes, even at its best. But God is the one who is at work here. So he takes Jonah and gets him into this position where he makes this confession. 
I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And you see, uh, I would encourage you to reflect upon that. I understand uh, that we have many professionals here today. We have people who talk, uh, speak, uh, uh, teach at universities. We have doctors. We have engineers. We have students. We have all sorts of things. For the sake of, uh, of the city, well, I wonder what a verse like this would mean. I am a Hebrew. You know, you work at Madison University here and uh, things conspire and you're put under a lot of pressure and you're forced to confess your belief. And then you get up at Madison University and you say, I am a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And your colleagues say, good heavens, we never knew you worshipped this God. Because if you worship this God... It must have something to do with the way we study and research the creation. I mean, there is, this God cannot be contained. You know, Abraham Kuyper has this glorious statement, which I like to quote whenever I can. There is not a square inch of the entire world of which Christ does not rightly say, that is mine, for the sake of the city. And so you see, the, you know, it's not that, uh, oh my goodness me, Church of the Incarnation is now going to embark on this extraordinary mission for the sake of the city. Uh, you've got it all wrong if you're thinking like that. Do you know it was, it was a, a, a Dutch theologian and also Karl Barth who helped us to realize that mission should be understood as missio dei. That mission is first of all the mission of God. And this is the most extraordinary thing. It doesn't need to start with Church of the Incarnation. It cannot start with Church of the Incarnation. It's already started. And God is the great missionary. And he said, work out there in extraordinary ways by his Spirit. And on Madison University campus and in Harrisonburg. And you know the best that you can do. But boy, it's exhilarating if you can get this vision. The best you can do is get alongside God in his mission for the sake of the city. But this God, you know, his purposes extend to every discipline at Madison University, to every business in Harrisonburg, to the way the city is run, and so on and so forth. Now, just two other points. The one is that it is we will only uh, be able to do this as we are attending to the word seriously. So, you know, the thing that unsettles Jonah, and I hope to some extent this unsettles you this morning in a good way, is that the thing that gets everything going is, and the word of the Lord came too. And the whole book of Jonah is framed by the word of Yahweh. It begins with a command, and it ends with a question. And see, the God that we worship is the God who speaks and so that's why amidst our liturgies, the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word is so tremendously important, because it's through the Word of the Lord that we will hear the call. And then, you know, you're going to need to learn, if you haven't already, the disciplines of listening. Now, you may say, oh, but Craig, we're very good at Church of the Incarnation with the Word. Aubrey's an excellent preacher, which is quite true, and we have great preaching here. But you know, Jonah was a very good preacher. 
But do you know what it took to get Jonah to listen? He had to be shut up in the belly of a dark whale or big fish for three days. He, he had to be forced to stop before he could listen. And so the final thing, which I will talk much more about tonight, but I, I, not much more actually, but I want to hear tonight what you have to say, is that if we are going to be for the sake of the city, we have to be formed as God's people. And you know, this I think is an area that, especially in the evangelical world, we make huge mistakes. So again and again, don't you find that we do this? You know, we get converted, we get very excited, we think, I've got the Bible, I've got the Spirit, I've got Church of the Incarnation, now it's take on the world. And the thing that we forget is conversion is the beginning. It's the start of a process. And, you know, I just want to remind you very briefly what you have in the Bible. You know, in the Old Testament, you remember with Abraham that God promises that through him he will bless all the nations of the world? I mean, Abraham was truly for the sake of the world. Why do you think we have all those funny stories then between Genesis 12 and Genesis 50? I mean, those guys were a bit stupid, right? They do all sorts of weird things, giving their wife to Pharaoh. Well, you know, then Pharaoh has to give her back because God gets angry. And all those strange stories. Why so many chapters? Why not just get on with it for the sake of the world? Do you know why? Because they have the promise. But they have to be formed to become a people like the promise. Indeed, they have the promise. But now they have to be formed by God to become like the promise. Have you ever read the book of Job? Why? Such a long book. Well, any, if any of you are going through serious suffering, you'll know that it feels just like Job, a long book. But see, Job was a righteous man. That's what he thought. But then he has to be formed through suffering and pain to really become wise so that he's worthy of being God's representative for the sake of the city. And then there's Jonah. Well, you know, it was when this word came to Jonah that you, you learned what Jonah was really like, off to Tarshish as fast as possible. Lord, I'll do anything for you, but I cannot be for the sake of Nineveh. That would be unacceptable. And so God is very patient with Jonah, brings him back, has him vomited out onto dry land, which must have been a fun experience, <laughs> and then recommissions him. And then Jonah is totally angry when his ministry is successful. And you know, at the end of the book of Jonah, we actually never know whether Jonah came round to being like God. But you know, it doesn't matter because what God wants to know about you. Are you willing to be formed to become like God for the sake of the city? Amen.